Welcome to the Metamorphosis Podcast, hosted by Nora Bruker in Germany and myself, Erin Howe in the United States. In this podcast, we talk to people about transformation and the moments and events that change us. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the very first episode of the Metamorphosis Podcast. We're so glad to have you. Our first guest is Aaron Rosa. Aaron served as a Naval Flight Officer in the U.S. Navy for eight years before transitioning to the reserves in a civilian job. While in the Navy, Aaron took on a new hobby as a photographer with the lofty goal of someday appearing in National Geographic. As we will learn, he chose photography as a way to make a change within himself. In his interview, Aaron tells us about some of his travels, both for the Navy as well as for his photography. He shares with us how looking at the world from a different view has changed him and his perspective of the world. A quick disclaimer that I do know Aaron personally, as he was stationed in a squadron with my husband when we were in Hawaii. What I did not know was that it was an interaction with my husband that led him to make some change. And now, on to my chat with Aaron. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, this is this is a life dream to be um, podcast famous, um, and to be on the first episode, no less. Uh, no, I actually I had never touched a camera before. Um, never really had an interest in photography. I liked movies; was about the closest that you could get. Um, but uh, as a being in a squadron and you know flying all the time and the responsibilities that y- you have there. It, it puts a really great strain on you emotionally and uh, just a lot of stress built up there. And so I was looking for, um, I was looking for something that would allow me to get out of my own head and uh, particularly um, not focus on myself. So I, I was getting from a lot of people around the time, like you're very self-centered, you're very, you know, arrogant person, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, you know, thanks. Thanks people. <laughs> um, and so I figured uh, photography was something that I could do that I would be behind a camera and it would inherently take myself out of the equation and force myself to, to focus on others. And so I decided to give it a shot. Uh, I got a camera and I, I bought the best one I could find for video, but it also took stills. But the irony was when I got it, I couldn't really figure out the video aspect of it. And I learned that I was, you know, kind of good at taking still photos. So uh, what ended up happening was that that interest kind of married up with uh, another interest of mine, which is kind of entre- entrepreneurship. And I was able to, you know, it, it came along to the point where I was like, well, if I can use this hobby to pay for itself, it's a net zero hobby. And so that's how I got started. That's amazing. So along the way, did you find out that you were self-centered as had been? Oh, incredibly. Really? <laughs> uh, to, I mean, when, a little bit of my story, you know, it's, uh, it's a happy ending, but it's a rough story, like all good stories. Uh, so I left Hawaii. Um, I, I left the squadron. I took a set of good deal orders at the Naval Academy teaching there. Um, it was one of those sets of orders where you really only worked like eight hours a week and everybody was like, you know, go get your master's, kind of relax after your uh, sea tour and everything. So it was, 
it was, it was supposed to be a good deal. And I moved here and ended up going through a divorce. And, uh, that just, that just crushed me, you know, um, and a lot of those, you know, self-centered issues kind of came up in that, that some, those were some of the reasons. Uh, however, um, it was, uh, incredibly brutal season. And what I really became thankful for was that the photography was there to allow an outlet, right? But also um, through the photography, I ended up in a situation that I never could have predicted, which was that um, having gotten pretty decent at photography in the first year or so when I was in my squadron, I uh, built up a portfolio and had been published a few times in some news organizations. And then when I moved to um, Annapolis, I actually applied for on a whim for a journalism master's program and got a full ride to study at the University of Maryland to get a, a master's degree in journalism. So uh, about the time the divorce was going down, I was like one semester into getting a master's in journalism. And because of the way the scholarship was worked out, I couldn't really pause. I had to keep going. And so here I found myself, you know, do, teaching full-time at the Naval Academy, taking a full-time master's at the University of Maryland, being a single dad uh, to a one-year-old at the time, and, uh, and then all the drama of going through a divorce at the same time. And it was just absolutely just crushing. It was, it was, it was insane. Uh, so the photography <laughs> ended up being more of an outlet than I thought it would be. And then also ended up saving my bacon a few times because, uh, going through all that, you can imagine how stressful and financially all that is. Absolutely. Uh, I would, I would also, you know, on the weekends that I didn't have my son, I would jam pack those weekends with weddings that I would book. And so I'd make, you know, a thousand dollars here, $2,000 there. And, and this would, you know, this would fund the lawyer, this would fund uh, food, <laughs> this would, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, it was, it was still my outlet. And so I was able to kind of de-stress simultaneously. So it really was a, a blessing. Right. When did you decide that you were good enough to attempt to be published or apply for awards or anything like that? Oh, geez. Um, how, how did you realize you were good? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, one of the things about being a creative is you, you, you're constantly uh, measuring yourselves against other creatives and, um, being kind of a type A personality, uh, you, of course, I mean, you don't measure yourself against the kid next door. You measure yourself against, you know, Henri Cartier-Bresson or, you know, Steve McCurry, like the greats, right? And you're like, oh, my stuff is crap because, you know, I can't take the picture of the Afghan girl. Um, and so there's, it's, it's a really self-masochistic, you know, industry, um, but or I guess masochistic. Um, but, uh, I remember thinking I would love to be able to, um, shoot for national geographic and which is of course every, uh, photographer's dream, right? That's the, that's the goal. Right. And, uh, I Googled how to shoot for National Geographic. I remember I was in Djibouti at the point where I was like, how do you shoot for National Geographic? And the thing that got me there was not so much this idea that I was good enough, but more along the lines of, um, I have something that's unique. So I, I'm not essentially an amazing photographer, but I have access to something that most people don't see. I have access to stories that most people don't see. I have a unique background and training that most people don't have, most photographers don't have. And so uh, some of my work leading up to that point, what led me to think I was good enough was not so much the quality of it, but really the stories I was telling about, you know, the long hours when we were flying on deployment. And, you know, I felt like I was in an episode of Humper in October, 
or not episode, but in the movie where, um, you know, we're tracking submarines on one continent and then we're busting drug runners in El Salvador. And then we're looking at ISIS camps in Djibouti and all within the same six month period. And I'm just, I'm doing all of these things and it's like crazy overland Libya, like all this kind of stuff and being able to document all that. And with my camera, uh, it wasn't so much a man, my photos are good enough, but more like my stories are good enough. And so, um, I started, uh, I, I started with a Google search. And one thing that I learned pretty quickly is that National Geographic doesn't hire photographers anymore. Like, gone are the days of the staff photographer who they're like yeah you're gonna go shoot this story and this story and all that they do contract photographers and one thing that i read from the national geographic photo editor was um if we want you to shoot for us we already know about you oh wow okay and i was like whoa there's this idea of election there you're just like wow that's that's, that's crazy and they said that the only way that they know about you is that you've been published so I go, all right, well, at least let me try to get published. So I remember just Googling, you know, people that publish photos, photo essay publishers and all that. And uh, with, when the goal is to get published and not necessarily to make money, <laughs> that list is a little bit longer. Um, and so I ended up uh, going through a bunch and, and, and contacting their editors and saying, hey, you know, here's some pictures of mine. Here's some stories I've been thinking about. And uh, the the photographic journal gave me my big break. And I, uh, I just reached out by email to this guy. I said, Hey, look, I, I, you seem to have like a wide range and from art to documentary on your website. It looks fantastic. It looks interesting. Um, would you be interested in some of these photos kind of documenting, you know, our lives in this pretty crazy story? Uh, he's like, yeah, sure. This guy publishes new articles daily. So he's star for content. So, I sent him some photos and, and, and that's when it's sort of, you know, taking off. That's incredible. So you really um, just kind of said, let me make this work for me <laughs> and yeah. figure out how to, that's incredible. So, um, one of the changes switching from Navy life to taking your, uh, photography on your own. So you've traveled to some amazing places in both aspects. Mm -hmm. Um, how has your travels outside of the Navy in some of the same places, potentially even, how have you, how has that changed your views of those places? Oh, tremendously. Um, I remember, <laughs> so I spent four months in uh, El Salvador on deployment. The smallest and most densely populated country in Central America, El Salvador is still suffering the aftermath of civil war in the 1980s. Violent street gangs, such as MS-13, leave it with one of the world's highest murder rates, MS-13 being the most notorious of these. And I remember it, it was very much, it was one of those things where you landed, we were in plain clothes, we got into a bus, they took us to this compound, a hotel surrounded by a compound, and we were never allowed to leave. We would get onto a, an armored vehicle to get to the base, you know, whenever we had to fly and then come back and that was it, and you never got liberty. And the, the, the party line that they would always tell you is, you know, MS-13 is out there. They want to kill you. You're in danger. It's the most dangerous place in the world. Highest murders per capita, all that kind of stuff. And to be fair, I mean, there were certain points where, you know, we'd be driving to work and MS-13 would um, hang bodies from the, uh, the overpass or uh, at the mall, there was a guy who got stabbed in the parking lot, something like 160 times. It was wow. 
but it was insane. Um, they would set fires to outhouses on the sides of the road on our way to work to intimidate us, that kind of thing. And so I came away from El Salvador thinking that one, you know, we were very well protected, but at the same time, it was a very dangerous place. You know, you never go outside the compound, never, you know, venture anywhere else. And uh, several years later, about two, three years later, um, I was one of the main ways I was able to practice my photography and documentary skills was by going on missions trips for my church. Um, which was becoming a bigger thing because I was going through a divorce. And so I it grew closer to the church in that time. And so I ended up going on a missions trip to El Salvador uh, with uh, some students from the Naval Academy as a, as a leader. And of course, I'm taking pictures there. And of course, you know, everything the Navy tells you is, you know, it's dangerous. I had to get like an admiral to sign off on my, you know, leave and all that to get there. And you know, being on the ground and being outside and in the cities and, and uh, among the neighborhoods and going into people's homes and all that, you know, we we're looking at people of abject poverty, just the majority of the country has been exploited by the narco trafficking that's been happening there. And so um, what I what really changed me was the fact that, you know, here are so many people who are suffering, you know, very much a, at the uh, as a result of the reputation of people who are doing bad things that they have no control over. So it's a beautiful country, uh, beautiful people, um, wonderful stories of just resilience and, and the ability to just be happy despite their circumstances. And uh, that, that really changed my mind um, from when I was there the first time. You no longer feel like everybody's out to get you or out to exploit you and kind of, uh, it opens your eyes to a uh, deeper humanity. So where are you now that you're out of the Navy and into a civilian job? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was at journalism school. I realized that um, I realized that photographers are a dime a dozen, even the good ones. And so I wanted to carve a niche out for myself. So I learned about virtual reality storytelling and I won a bunch of awards doing that. Um, basically by taking my formula, which is you might not be very good, but if you go get a crazy story and put yourself in some danger, it'll get you something better they'll set you apart and so i ended up shooting a story about a flood in virtual reality um i had to send a death waiver to go into this building there's beams hanging down there was like 20 feet of silt built up um everything i was standing on was creaking it was nuts and um but i ended up getting this and and, and creating this virtual reality story that ended up winning an emmy and so i was able to translate that into an actual job and so Northrop Grumman was able, um, they ended up hiring me based on the base of virtual reality experience. And uh, I mean, the, the difference night and day between the military and getting out, it was just um, one thing that I didn't expect was how much um, people in the private sector actually value thinking out of the box. Mm -hmm. um, I, when I tell my friends about what it's like to work at this company, I say it's like working at the Navy because there's a lot of Navy people. I work in undersea warfare, but they say um, it's a lot like the Navy, except the uh, the lazy people are weeded out and they're actually really excited about new ideas that can make them money. So I'm in a lot of ways working in my dream environment. So you have been published, you have won awards, you've worked on an Emmy winning show. Mm -hmm. And what, what from here, where do you go? Uh, <laughs> well, so this is, this is part of the, I don't know. It's just the, um, I guess the humor of the whole story is that, um, 
So getting out of the Navy and, and all of this around photography has centered around this idea of, I don't want to be self-centered anymore. Right. I don't want to be uh, a, a dick anymore. I'm like really. And um, in fact, actually it is funny. One of the most watershed moments in my life came from when I was in the car with your husband back when we were in the Navy. And I remember he's like, Hey, give me a ride to the sim building. And I was like, sure. And I just would put on his crew and we were driving to the sim building and he looks at me, he's sitting in the passenger seat and he goes, uh, you really annoy me and you annoy a lot of people. You know that? And I go, do you want to walk? <laughs> but uh, he goes, you know, you pissed off everybody on the squadron at this point. Um, but you're on my crew and uh, you're my responsibility. And so I might not be able to undo what you've done, but I'm going to make you good enough at your job that they won't be able to hate you based on your performance. And I go, oh, okay, cool, thanks. And um, that really started a, a deep friendship with, with him. Uh, as we went on those deployments and all that. He's pretty much the only person who loved me enough to, you know, kind of hit it home that way. And, um, you know, moving back here and going through the divorce and all that, uh, it, it really led me to reevaluate a lot of things that you know, had undergirded my life. And one of those was my faith. And so, um, <laughs> I had a, fr a friend at the, at the church who, I, while I was going through all of this, he goes, you know, you're really good with guys. I was like, that's weird. Cause a lot of guys wouldn't say that. <laughs> because, no, you, you seem to get it. Like you, you seem to uh, be able to relate to them and, and joke with them and all that, you know, in a way that most people don't, can't. And um, I, I credit that a lot with just, you know, being in the Navy. Nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> I mean, uh, and I've been in, and, and, you know, to get on a more serious note, you know, I, I, I went to Egypt and uh, I was... Uh, shooting some some photos there and i met with this um with a series of people who had been persecuted for their faith um by isis in the sinai peninsula and one guy um you know one guy came up and told us very matter-of-factly the story about how he and his brother were deacons in their local church and they were walking home and they ran into an isis patrol and the isis patrol um the the, the christians in egypt have a small cross tattooed on their hand it's it's a thing if they do the Coptic Christians there. Coptic Christians are tattooed with the cross as a form of identification. It's meant to show as an outward sign that they belong and is presented at the door of the church to ensure that no one enters with ill will. This outward symbol can also lead to persecution and harassment outside of their religious community. The history on this is so old, there is some question to its origins. Some say it was started by monks in the eighth century purely as an outward sign of belonging while others say that it came from the 7th century when Christians in that region were persecuted and it marked those who refused to convert away from Christianity. And they looked at his brother's hand, they saw the cross, and they shot his brother in the face right in front of him. And then they went and they looked for his tattoo, right? And they couldn't find it, but they didn't realize that they hadn't lifted his shirt uh, sleeve far enough because he had a massive crucifix on his forearm. Oh, wow. And... Um, I mean, he, he tells the story about, you know, they let him go and he, he runs off and he tells a story. He, he, he says, and an, this was an angel, but it was a, you know, a man dressed all head to toe in white with a white beard and all that gave him a ride home and comforted him in the car. And as he, you know, closed the door and walked away, he turned around to thank the guy and the guy had disappeared. And so, you know, you, you, you see a gamut of stories 
Uh, my life, I've been blessed to have a life of amazing stories and been told to me and experienced. And so um, not being shocked by anything anymore, uh, I think that has a lot to do with um, being able to relate to men. And so through that, you know, I've been uh, uniquely able to uh, to talk to men and, and, and share stories with men and, and point them and, and encourage them in their faith. And so, uh, the next step for me actually is, uh, I'm, I'm actually going to seminary and my, uh, my dream is to build an authentic men's ministry, uh, where it's not so much, you know, you suck. This is what you, you know, stop looking at that and like all this kind of stuff, all the rules and more a, uh, a message of, you know, you are unique so much, you know, language and, and culture uh, goes uh, against men. And so, um, you know, kind of encouraging them along and then kind of like what your husband modeled for me. Uh, maybe that means, you know, having some choice words for some guys, but the idea is to love them enough to be able to do that. And so, my next dream is to, um, I want to, I want to finish a book, uh, about, you know, a message for men and then, you know, go on, you know, kind of preaching and uh, ministering to them in the future. But you know what? Five years ago, I thought I was going to be in the Navy and now I'm married to a wonderful woman with a crazy kid and I have a degree in journalism who knew that was going to happen. And I work doing virtual reality, like computer programming, which, 90% of my job I learned on YouTube. Um, so who knows what's going to happen in the next five years. That's incredible. Definitely. Life is ever changing, <laughs> if nothing <laughs> else. <laughs> so thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, you have been an excellent and patient guinea pig. Oh, of course. I definitely appreciate um, your chat with us. Sure. So sure. Always a pleasure. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Storytelling through photography provides a depth and richness to the everyday moments of life. You can find links to some of Aaron's published works on our Instagram and website and in our show notes. Thank you for listening. The Metamorphosis Podcast is produced by Nora Brooker in Germany and me, Aaron Howe, in the United States. Thank you to all of our supporters, and of course, a huge thank you to our guests who are telling us their stories from around the globe about change and life-changing moments. For more information about each episode, check out officialmetamorphosispodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at officialmetamorphosispodcast for an exclusive look behind the scenes and our guests. We're happy for you to leave your thoughts on each episode, and we're very much looking forward to hearing from you. This is the Metamorphosis Podcast with Nora and Erin.